God, we thank you that as we come to bring our meager gifts of praise and offerings and worship today, we are invited to remember that you are the one who has been chasing us down. As we spend time looking into your word, we ask that you would uh, speak your word to each one of us. Help us to come to understand what it is that you want each of us to take away from our time with you this morning as a reminder of your goodness and your love and your mercy and your grace so that we can put our trust wholeheartedly in you again today. As we go from this place, uh, seeking to be light in the darkness and hope in a hostile world, we ask that you would teach us from the book of Daniel and from the stories of your people, how we too are called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are wrapping up our part one of our Daniel series today. Uh, We are doing the stories of chapters one through six. We're going to pause for the holidays and then we'll come back in the new year and we're going to do the the apocalyptic literature of chapters seven through 12. So that's going to be fun. I'm excited about jumping into that. Uh, It's kind of a book of Revelation style. And so we'll get to compare and contrast kind of where uh, Daniel is going to take us in the second part of the book. Uh, But at the end of chapter 5 last week, we were introduced to the new character, Darius the Mede, who took over uh, uh, Babylon for Persia, and who we see now, as we pick up the story in chapter 6, is the one who is ruling in Babylon. Now, I want to invite you to, again, uh, just relax and listen to the story. There's a lot here, and so I want to read the whole story for us today. And, and the stories of the Bible are intended to invite us to begin to use our imaginations, to, to picture ourselves as if we're in the story, and what might it have been like if we were there, and how might we react or experience the situations in which we find the characters. And so in that spirit, I invite you to close your eyes or keep them open, um, whatever it is that you want to do that will help you to come into story time today. Let's pull up our mats, listen to the story, and let's see what God has for us today. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it begins, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to, figure, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, My king Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. 
Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men, as a group, went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Then the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to the nations and peoples of uh, every language of all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that every part of my kingdom, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Now we'll pause there and we'll pick up the end of the chapter uh, a little bit later. But I want to take some time to kind of unpack the background and some of the, uh, the context of what we see in the story, because there's a lot here, and it might take us a while to work through it all, but I want you to hang in there with me, because I think it's important to see all of the different nuances that are here that we might miss if we rush too quickly past them, because it's pretty amazing, I think you'll see, on how it all comes together in the end. 
So here we go. I'll try to be quick. Good luck with that. First of all, the person of Darius is a bit of a puzzle, since there's no mention of him in the extra-biblical historical record. We, we do know that Cyrus was the ruler of the Persian Empire at the time of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So it's most likely that Darius was a, a throne name for someone who is ruling in Babylon under Cyrus's authority. Some scholars have suggested that maybe the name Darius could have been the Babylonian name for Cyrus himself, uh, but others think that it's more likely that another candidate, someone like maybe some guy named Gu Ugbaru, who is attributed in the uh, Nabonidus Chronicles that were discovered years later as the military general who actually conquered Babylon. If so, if it was somebody like him, then Darius would have been uh, uh, his ruling name in Babylon, and he would have been a sub-king under Cyrus. And here you might recall, it was kind of a similar situation with Belshazzar last week in chapter 5, right? Uh, he was unknown for centuries in the historical record. Outside of the Bible, there was no reference we could find to Belshazzar. But then in 1854, with the archaeological find in Babylon, we discovered that he was mentioned there as the son of Nabonidus, who was the ruler in Babylon, who had exiled himself and put his son Belshazzar in charge. So there we had a historical record. Now, we don't have that for Darius yet, but who knows? He still may turn up. Either way, the actual identity of who the person of Darius was doesn't impact or change our interpretation of the text. In the story, we see that Darius is setting up a new system of government in Babylon. He's dividing the empire into 120 satrapies with three administrators over them, which scholars say is a move that would have pushed the empire towards a greater decentralization of power. So before, starting in the story with Nebuchadnezzar, you kind of had this uh, one ruler who kept all the power for himself. Now you have Darius who's starting to push power out to delegate authority in a broader sense. And we shouldn't be surprised that in this process, Daniel distinguishes himself among all these other rulers and authorities that he's putting in place, right? That's kind of the MO, that Daniel is God's man, and Daniel follows God's wisdom. And in God's blessing, he is able uh, to, to outperform and outshine all of those other uh, leaders around him. But of course, this doesn't sit well with those other leaders, right? Their jealousy for him leads them uh, to want to begin to undermine his uh, move to be the number one spot on the totem pole. But since they're unable to find any fault in his leadership or any conduct, uh, corruption in his conduct, they resort to pitting his loyalty to God against his loyalty to Darius and the Persian government that he is led to serve and particularly against Darius, who is, you know, favors Daniel and has been the one who's wanted to promote him uh, to be in charge. Now, from a larger perspective, if we pull back from the characters themselves, we can also see a competition being set up between the law of the Medes and the Persians and the law of the God of the Bible. Several times in the text, it mentions that these men who opposed Daniel moved or acted as a group. I don't know if you caught that phrase as I was reading, but several times it says they, they, they went as a group. And, and apparently the word that is translated uh, for that phrase as a group 
um, has several different nuances that we miss in the English. First, of course, it means you can go in company together as a group, but it also has the connotation of a conspiracy, that this group is uh, a little bit nefarious and up to no good. And it also has the notion of rage and emotion behind it. So what we miss in, in the English version is that um, there is this kind of emotionally charged conspiratorial aspect to this company of people who are acting in concert to both deceive the king and to overthrow Daniel. From the very beginning, they lied to the king, right? In claiming that, oh, king, all of your leaders have unanimously agreed to, to this proposal, except they left out that the number one guy, Daniel, didn't even know about it. <laughs> On the surface, too, doesn't their proposal seem a little odd? At least maybe to us today. I mean, it, it kind of appears to suggest the king would make himself the sole deity in the empire, right? But for 30 days? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to make yourself the God, wouldn't it be like forever? What, what's this whole 30-day thing? Well, it's possible that the intention wasn't to claim that Darius is God or is the only God, but that he's the only legitimate representative of the gods. And for these 30 days, they're going to force everyone to acknowledge that religiously speaking. So it's possible that given this move towards greater political decentralization in the government, he is tempted now to introduce this proposal as a way of focusing the religious power back to himself for the short period of time as a means of coalescing his ultimate authority in the empire in the hearts and the minds of the people, even while he's delegating authority politically to these other people. Maybe for us, it would be like him saying, hey, remember, people, this isn't a democracy, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm sharing the power, but I'm still in charge. Whatever his intention, Darius, Darius likes the proposal, and so he issues the decree, which then puts Daniel in an impossible position from a human point of view. Yet even in Daniel's response then, what we see is a very simple and understated explanation of, of how he responds to this decree, right? He simply does what he's been doing every day. He doesn't change his routine. He goes upstairs, he prays three times a day with the windows open to Jerusalem. He doesn't seem to question or doubt or worry, or wring his hands, oh no, what do I do? He just keeps doing what he does in his relationship with God. Maybe what Eugene Peterson might call a long obedience in the same direction. Praying three times a day and praying towards Jerusalem now were not mandated in the law of God. Those were not part of the expectation that Daniel had to do this in order to be acceptable in God's eyes. These were simply Daniel's prayer patterns. They were his, what we might call today, his rule of life uh, for staying connected with God and making sure that he was relying on God for his wisdom and his power throughout his daily life. That was a part of the wisdom that he learned is that the true wisdom for living life in this world only comes from God. So why would you not want to stay connected to God on a regular basis so you have that open channel for wisdom and for knowing how to live your life? 
Though these practices were not mandated by God, we can still clearly see that they were influenced by God's word. Just some examples. Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. And of course, as Daniel is praying, we also know because of the exile that the temple in Jerusalem towards which he's praying has been decimated, right? It's in ruins. Now, King Solomon made clear that when he built and dedicated the temple to God, the temple did not itself contain God, but it was the place that God himself chose to inhabit with with his presence in a special way so that that was the place that his people could come and worship him and find forgiveness for their sins. And in the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which early on we showed were contemporary with the stories of Daniel, Uh, They testified to what was going on with God in this season of exile. Ezekiel tells us that God had abandoned his earthly home in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 10, 18a at the beginning of Ezekiel says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. And because of the sin and the presumption of his people, God had said to Jeremiah in chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, he says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now you might recall that this is a a passage that is quoted by Jesus when he overturns the the tables of the money changers in the temple later on, right? And, And we've talked about that before. The robber's den, if you think about it, wasn't the place where they committed the crimes. It was the place where they went back to hide out after they had committed the crimes because they knew they were going to be safe there. And God's claiming through Jeremiah that his people are unwittingly using God and using worship as a cover for their sin. As if God's mercy and forgiveness were a license to go on just doing the very things that God's mercy and his forgiveness were supposed to be calling them out from. So God allowed the Babylonians to tear down the temple and to take his people into exile. Yet even while in exile, as we see here in the example of Daniel, God's people look longingly to Jerusalem and to the temple as the symbol of their hope and their future. It would be likely we can assume that Daniel would have had the prayer of King Solomon in mind, where in his prayer of dedication to the temple in Jerusalem, because Solomon is the one who first built the temple for God in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35 and 36, it says, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place, And give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them. 
Then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send the rain on the land you gave your people for inheritance. And so we see what's happening here in Daniel's response to this decree that's gone out from King Darius is that he's neither flaunting his resistance to the decree nor was he hiding his prayer practices from the people around him, right? He, he was praying in an upper room with the, with the windows open, but this again was his common practice. It wasn't like something new he did to, to kind of show off for the crowd. He wasn't putting himself on public display, but he was in his private room seeking God's comfort and care and asking God for help. That's why it says in verse 11, then these men went, there it is again, as a group, and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. The conspirators, it says, had to go and seek him out, right? They had to go and spy on him in order to catch him in the act. And it suggests that Daniel is anticipating trouble like this because that's what he's doing is he's asking God for help. And so with the news brought to the king, it says Darius became greatly distressed, or we could say he was extremely dismayed by the news, right? And he made every effort, it says, to to try and rescue Daniel. But in the end, even Darius, the most powerful man on earth at the time, didn't have the power to save him. And his only recourse in verse 16 is to plead to the God of Daniel. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. And of course, that's exactly what transpires that night, right? After a sleepless night filled with worry for Daniel, Darius must have had some hope that God might come through for Daniel because at the first light of dawn, he's rushing off to get to the pit to see if Daniel's still alive. So he must have had some kind of hope. And in verse 19, it says, He called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually in a long obedience in the same direction, been able to rescue you from the lions? Which, of course, we now know he did. And in a twist of fate, the entire conspiracy group winds up in the lion's den themselves. The story here, scholars suggest, plays out as a kind of trial by ordeal, where someone who is suspected of a crime, but with some uncertainty about the the, the truth of their guilt, is put through an ordeal to see if they will survive. And if they survive, then the gods have judged them innocent, right? You've heard about these kinds of things in other stories before, or maybe in a movie. And this is what we see in Daniel's perspective as he reports to Darius what had happened, right? He says, my God sent his angel, shut up the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. And nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty, by the way. (laughs) See, God has judged Daniel innocent by saving him from the lions. In fact, Daniel doesn't even have a scratch on him. Kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who came out of the fiery furnace, not even smelling like smoke. He doesn't even have a scratch on him. Now, a skeptic might claim that the the lions just probably weren't hungry, (laughs) 
right? Or, or maybe you know, someone drugged them and they just weren't you know, able to kind of figure out what was going on. Uh, but but, but that all, uh, all that speculation goes away when the conspirators are thrown in the den and immediately lions pounce before they even hit the floor of the, the pit, right? What can we take away from this story of Daniel and the lions? And first of all, following the core theme of the book, once again, we see that in spite of how things appear, God is always in control. In spite of how things appear, God is always in control, which is ultimately the source of courage and comfort and hope for God's people who find themselves in situations that are beyond their control and living life in a hostile world. In the end, not only does God reveal himself as a God who rescues and saves his people, but even King Darius, the, the, the enemy of God's people, uh, declares that the, the God of Daniel is the one true living God. Now, secondly, we've been learning that the stories in the book of Daniel could be considered part of the, the wisdom literature of the Bible as well. And we can see how the principles of biblical wisdom begin to play themselves out in the real-life situations of the stories of Daniel. Let me tell you what, a little bit what I mean by that. The accusers, right, these conspiracy folks who walk around as a group, they set a trap for Daniel, but in the end, they were the ones who were caught in their own trap. And not only the accusers themselves, but their actions brought consequences on their entire families. Now, it's a pretty gruesome punishment, to be sure, and it's very much at odds with our modern morality and sensibilities, but it's likely that this was not an abnormal occurrence in the ancient world. The king obviously considered the duplicitous manipulation of his own authority to be a pretty serious crime, right? And I can imagine he would have been pretty angry at how they used him for their own ends to undermine Daniel, who was the guy that he had wanted to be in charge of the kingdom. And also, as part of the intention, is probably of this kind of punishment was to remove the possibility of future generations growing up and seeking revenge on the king or the empire. Now, in biblical wisdom, I want to suggest that we can see that there's an ironic twist to the worldly wisdom that people pursue when they don't follow God's wisdom. Here, what we see is that the law that the conspirators created and convinced Darius to decree was intended to create a means by which people would show extreme loyalty to the king. That was the, the premise of why this law should be created. And ironically, in proposing the law to begin with, the conspirators were actually being disloyal to the king. They were subtly working behind the scenes against his own desires and his intentions, while Daniel, who finds himself under the judgment of this law, is the one who is actually the most loyal to the king and had never done anything wrong. A second irony or twist of fate is that the decree, which became one of the laws of the Medes and Persians, which was repeated several times in the story, right, which could not be repealed, even by Darius himself, this law that has this intention of setting Darius up as the ultimate authority in the land actually imprisoned him to his own authority. 
And so the wisdom of the world that we are often tempted to follow and give into often has unintended consequences for those who fail to see how it might lead them to be in direct opposition to the wisdom of God and to God's ways in the world. Some quick examples from other wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 10, verses 8 and 9. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Well, that happened, right? (laughs) Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Or jumping to verse 12, words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. Again, that's what happened to these conspirators, right? Or more directly stated in Proverbs 28, verse 10, whoever leads the upright along an evil path will fall into their own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. You see, unwittingly for Darius, his decision brings him and his law into a fundamental conflict with God and God's law. And Daniel knows that God's law requires him to pray only to the one true God and not to any human king. And yet Darius' law ultimately binds him to a course of action that he didn't want and he couldn't change. God's law, in contrast, is always the perfect expression of God's character and always produces the purpose for which he intended it. That's kind of why the psalmist can talk about God's law in a way that would be illegitimate for any human law. Just again, as a sample, verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. See, Daniel knew that the cost of obedience to God was great, but in the end, Daniel would rather be eaten by lions than to turn his back on the God that he knew. See, Daniel knew from his wisdom and his experience in his relationship with God that there is no power greater to rely on in life than God himself. And in the end, God overrules all of the evil intentions that human beings have to bring about his great salvation, which really becomes then the larger theme of what the whole Bible is about, right? It's the core good news message of Jesus is that from before the creation of the world, God had planned to rescue his people and to send his son to be the savior of the world so that he could overcome any power of sin or darkness or evil and and bring us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. Here we might be reminded of the words of Joseph as he reflected on his trial by ordeal, right? In verse 50, or chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis, jo- Joseph famously said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Or in the words of the apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28, we know, he says, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which is the saving of many lives. Some questions for us, maybe as we seek to apply the story of Daniel for us today. What do you face today that surpasses what Daniel had to face in his day. 
And if we're really honest about what we claim to believe as Christians, can we acknowledge that we have an even greater foundations for faith in the midst of suffering and the threat of death than Daniel did? I mean, throughout the centuries since this story happened, Daniel's emergence from the den of the lions has become a typology of Jesus' death and resurrection. You can find it in Christian art and Christian literature. I just want to walk you through some things that kind of blew my mind, and maybe you picked up on some of these clues as we're reading through, or maybe this will, will jump out at you as well. The, the, the story of Daniel and the lion's den actually parallels the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Do you realize that? As Daniel was framed on false charges by the jealous Persian administrators, so Jesus was framed by the jealous religious leaders of his day. Jesus, like Daniel, was arrested while he was at prayer in a private location. Pilate, like Darius with Daniel, sought to, to rescue Jesus from the punishment. But in the end, both were turned over to be executed because these leaders were powerless to save the people that they wanted to save. Daniel emerges without a scratch while Jesus dies. Seems like a conflict, but this only serves to highlight Jesus' superiority, who even though he dies, yet he comes out of the tomb alive. You could say without a scratch. Both the pit and the tomb had a stone placed over it and sealed for protection. In both cases, at the first light of dawn, both Darius and Jesus' disciples rushed to go see him, right? Finally, both Darius and the disciples experienced firsthand the miracle of God's saving power and become those who first publicly proclaimed the glory of God. Now, when Daniel first heard about the law forbidding his prayer, he didn't suggest going out and staging a protest. He didn't gather all of his Jewish buddies and, 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 and go nail 95 theses on the door at the palace. <laughs> he didn't rally the troops to, to put up a fight. What is it? What do you assume he's doing when he's in the upper room and he's praying for God's help, but he knows that there's nothing he can do other than to follow God's law? He's preparing himself to die. In the same way, the wisdom that God reveals to us in Jesus is that Christians never fight for their beliefs by assaulting or killing or forcing their views on anyone. From the beginning, in following Jesus' example, our testimony, the way that we learn to fight, is by dying. Do you realize that the greatest power that you have, that God has given you in his son, Jesus Christ, is for you to sacrifice your life for the sake of the gospel? That's the invitation. That's the call. Jesus said, come and follow me. And where does he go? He goes to the cross. 
And then he invites his disciples to follow him by taking up their cross daily, not physically, not literally like he had to do for us, but to give up our lives and maybe in a kind of living death, which is a sacrifice to demonstrate the same kind of love that God showed us in Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 11, I've told you this. so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command, And see, this core principle that comes to us from the Bible, we see played out in the lives of people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then even in the New Testament with people like Stephen and Peter and John and Paul, who were either killed or imprisoned or somehow gave up sacrificially for the gospel. We can see even more clearly today, not amongst ourselves, but in the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have the freedom that we do, that don't have the luxury of not having to worry about life when they're worshiping God, but, but instead live with, under threat in coercive and oppressive societies. And to all Christians who continue to life in the midst of a hostile world, we're invited to remember that Jesus has not only gone into the lion's den and emerged unscathed, but he has died and he's emerged from the tomb alive again. And that is the truth of the wisdom of God that you can bank your life on and it allows you to have the courage to live sacrificially and generously in Jesus' name because you know that there's no other power on earth that can bring you joy or happiness or salvation or rescue than the name of Jesus, amen? It's a faith in that Jesus that gives us the courage to risk everything, even death, for the sake of knowing Christ and participating in his kingdom, which is what the church is supposed to be. It's the people who have been called out of the world to go on mission with Jesus, to give testimony to the truth of the gospel by loving as Jesus loved. But it's scary to give up your life. And the wisdom of the world tells you that that's not the way to find happiness. In fact, just the opposite. You need to take care of yourself. You need to, to, to feed yourself. You need to comfort yourself. You need to, to look out for number one and you need to get all the toys and the accoutrements and the, the, the wonderful things that this world has to offer. And if you get enough and if you, if you have enough and you can enjoy it enough that somehow you're going to arrive at that place called happiness. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, if you want to be happy, if you want to follow God, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, don't be like the rich young ruler who walked away sad because he was all about the stuff. Let it all go. 
anything and everything for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord, and you will find happiness. You will find joy. You will find meaning and purpose. And you know what? God will bless you. He might not make you financially rich, but he will make you rich in relationships and he'll make you rich in happiness and he'll make you rich in joy. The very things that the entire world is longing for and running after and can never find, we have available right now, this moment, every day, if we simply will just let go and give it all to God. Because it's not doing anything good for us anyway. In the end, brothers and sisters, the core truth of the gospel message is that it's our willingness to lay down our lives that is our true testimony of our faith in Jesus. There just is no other way. Our complaints about the society in which we live, our efforts to legislate changes in the government, any attempts to compel people to live according to our moral standards, uh, they're all going to fall flat and they're all going to have the opposite effect of what we hope they will. Because they will never show people who Jesus really is, but will only turn people away from the gospel to the encouragement to live our lives in the same power and wisdom that we see in the quiet faithfulness of Daniel and of Jesus. And to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel is impressed upon us in the closing words from Darius himself. I want to invite the worship team to come back. And as they prepare to lead us in our closing song for the day, I want to invite you to consider the words of Darius, who he knew a little bit back then. But hear his words in the context of what we know now and the fact that we know that Jesus is alive. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves us. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And he can rescue you too from whatever you're facing today. From the power of sin and evil in our own lives, giving us true hope in this hostile world. Amen.